Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in group discussions on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is September 26, 2021, and I am your host, James Myers. I am so glad to have here today participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup Groups. And whether you have been with us before or are joining us for the first time, whether you have experience with Plato's works or are new to them, all are encouraged to add your voice to our dialogue. I will begin the discussion by introducing one of the key themes from today's reading selection and will invite participants to exchange ideas as they wish. I'll provide brief summaries of the ideas and try to connect them for further consideration. So I've suggested a total of three themes for discussion, which I posted in notes on the shared drive, but we can go in any direction the group chooses. I would ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I will call on you by first name as it appears in your screen profile to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving preference to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in about two hours, I would invite any participants who wish to remain online to stay and participate in Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So today I'm especially pleased to launch season two of Plato's Pod with our first reading from the Republic, a long dialogue that is among the most celebrated and in in places, perhaps the most controversial of Plato's works. We will be discussing in the next two hours, the passages from Stephanus reference number 502D to 521B. These passages include Plato's famous allegory of the cave, simile of the sun, divided line of knowledge, and the nature of good. The selection chosen for today's reading is near the middle of the Republic and can be understood on its own without reference to the preceding sections of the dialogue. I chose it for today's discussion in part because of its relation to the dialogue Theotetus, with which we ended season one in June, as well as to to Timaeus, with which we began our first season. We might also see references to Mino, Phaedrus, Carmides, and the other dialogues we discussed last season. So just a note here about our next meeting. Normally our meetings would be every two weeks, but because our next meeting would fall on a long weekend holiday here in Canada, Uh, I think we'll do our next meeting in three weeks, Uh, and I will suggest that we look at the passages in the Republic from 368A to 376C, so we'll go back in the Republic to an earlier uh, earlier sections of of that work. So I thought we might start today's discussion with a reading beginning at 514A, which is the allegory of the cave. So as we listen to this, let's reflect on the question that Socrates raised in Theotetus about the claim of Protagoras that, quote, man is the measure of all things, of the things that are, that they are, and of the things that are not, that they are not. So imagine yourself as a prisoner in the cave and whether you would be able to distinguish between that which truly is and that which truly is not. Would you be able to provide an accurate measurement and reflection of each state of being and non-being? Just by way of a little bit of background, in this part of the dialogue, Socrates and Glaucon have been discussing the education of the guardian class who will protect the constitution of the city-state that they have imagined. The guardians, they have determined, would necessarily be a rare breed of individual, possessing all of the four virtues and being free of temptation and desires that befall the rest of us. The guardians, they have determined, would require careful education on knowledge and in particular knowledge of the good, which we will discuss after this scene. So let's go now into the cave, imagining ourselves or the guardians 
as a prisoner looking at the images on the wall. And so here I'll share my screen and we'll ask if someone would help to read this. We've got two roles in this. We've got the role of, uh, let me just flip to the section here. We've got the role of Socrates, which is the S. And we've, got the, and we've got the role of Glaucon. So was that you, Moshe, volunteering yes, for Glaucon? Yes, it was. Excellent. You well, got thank it. You. Thank you. Do we have a volunteer for Socrates? I can read Socrates if nobody else would like. All right. Well, why don't I read Socrates and Moshe will read uh, Glaucon. So this starts at 514a. And Socrates starts by saying, Next, I said, compare the effect of education and of the lack of it on our nature to an experience like this. Imagine human beings living in an underground cave-like dwelling with an entrance a long way up, which is both open to the light and as wide as the cave itself. They've been there since childhood, fixed in the same place with the necks and legs fettered, able to see only in front of them because their bonds prevent them from turning their heads around. Light is provided by a fire burning far above and behind them. Also behind them, but on higher ground, there is a path stretching between them and the fire. Imagine that along this path, a low wall has been built, like a screen in front of puppeteers above which they show their puppets. I'm imagining it. Then also imagine that there are people along the wall, carrying all kinds of artifacts that project above it, statues of people and other animals made out of stone, wood, and every material. And, as you'd expect, some of the carriers are talking and some are silent. It is a strange image you're describing, and strange prisoners. They're like us. Do you suppose, first of all, that these prisoners see anything of themselves and one another, besides the shadows that the fire casts on the wall in front of them? How could they, if they have to keep their heads motionless throughout life? What about the things being carried along the wall? Isn't, that, isn't the same true of them? Of course. And if they could talk to one another, don't you think they'd suppose that the names they used applied to the things that they see passing before them? They would have to. And what if their prison also had an echo from the wall facing them? Don't you think that they'd believe the shadows passing in front of them were talking whenever one of the carriers passing along the wall was doing so? I certainly do. Then the prisoners would in every way believe that the truth is nothing other than the shadows of those artifacts. They must surely believe that. Consider then what being released from their bonds and cured of their ignorance would naturally be like if something like this came to pass. When one of them was freed and suddenly compelled to stand up, turn his head, walk, and look up toward the light, He'd be pained and dazzled and unable to see the things whose shadows he'd seen before. What do you think he'd say if we told him that he'd seen what, that what he'd seen before was inconsequential, but that now, because he is a bit closer to the things that are and, and is turned toward things that are more, he sees more correctly? Or to put it another way, if we pointed to each of the things passing by and asked him what each what each of them is, and compelled him to answer, don't you think he'd be at a loss, and that he believed that the things he saw earlier were truer than the ones he was now being shown? Much truer. And if someone compelled him to look at the light itself, wouldn't his eyes hurt, and wouldn't he turn around and flee towards the things he's able to see, believe that they're really clearer than the ones he's being shown? He would. 
And if someone dragged him away from there by force, up the rough, steep path, and didn't let him go until he had, until he had dragged himself him into the sunlight, wouldn't he be pained and irritated at being treated that way? And when he came into the light, with the sun filling his eyes, wouldn't he be unable to see a single one of the things now said to be true? He would be unable to see them, at least at first. Well, thank you for this. I, I think we'll, we'll end that reading at that particular part. And I just wanted to get the reaction of the participants here to what we've just read. You know, this idea, you know, if you've been able to imagine yourself as this prisoner in the cave, um, what, do you, what do you imagine you would be thinking or, or seeing either if you're staring at those images on the wall or if you had been dragged away from that wall and showed, shown something different, you know, how would you react? And do you think this is, do you think there's any connection of this allegory to, to our experience in real life? I mean, Socrates says at one point, they're like us, the prisoner. I was wondering what anybody thinks about this. JK, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, it'd be like uh, someone raised you know, in a small town, right, uh, without um, the influence of other, you know, other cultures, and they only spoke one language, and they only had, uh, you know, um, and every, all the institutions, all the things in the town were using the same language and uh, symbolism, and that's all, that's all they would know. And when they, if anyone would venture out of that small town into a larger city, you know, like, uh, um, you know, they would, you know, feel strange and say, well, what is this all about, right? Until they lived there for a while and got used to the new language and maybe adopted some of the, uh, uh, you know, some of the, um, you know, symbolism, right, uh, of that, uh, of that um you know, city, uh, you know, otherwise they, you know, they, they would probably feel, you know, like, uh, you know, at first they would feel like an alien, right? But, uh, but they would get used to it. Yeah. So, so, so they would, uh, yeah. So, so I, that, 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 that seems to be like, uh, like a, like a good analogy because um, I myself, you know, live for a number of years in a small town. Actually, I travel, you know, I, came from uh, a foreign country and lived in a small town. And so I had these, uh, you know, more than one experience of that, that feeling of being strange and, and had to learn the new language and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, a number of times. So, yeah. Well, thank you. That's a very interesting analogy, actually, to being in a small town. It actually strikes me as being relevant too, because I, I too lived in a small town. I grew up in a small town. And um, what you said, JK, about symbols and understanding the symbols, you know, whether they are images on a wall or words that are used to describe those, I think that's something that uh, a theme that Plato um, investigated in particular in, in the Phaedrus, which we discussed in season one, you know, how do we describe things? Uh, and do we share the same understanding of those descriptions? So, you know, this idea of being like that, uh, like that prisoner in the wall, uh, in the cave, staring at the wall, 
you know, how do we understand the meaning of those symbols, those images that are before us on that wall? Anybody else? Nari? I think Eva had her hand up first. Did she want to go? Okay. Eva, if, if you'd like to speak first and then Nari? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nari. So you're so kind. For some reason, I can't find the raise hand button. So I was actually raising my okay. real hand. Uh, I, I would like to share, I had maybe the opposite perspective of living in a big town. I was born and raised in Istanbul. And I went to Europe around my, when I was like a teenager. And uh, I was part of different ethnic groups in Istanbul. So as much as I could do, I knew that there were different lifestyles and there were different languages and all that. So it seemed like I was out of the cave in an early age. However, actually, I was really out of the cage when I went when I moved to Indiana and started living in a small town where everybody knows each other and everybody knows me. So I think it's the perspective that you are currently and how you see people around you because you might be fooling yourself with uh, the happiness or like, you know, that dopamine hormone while you're watching those shadows too. So I'm wondering if it's about the way that we see things on uh, the change or the shift of in or out of the cave. And thank you again, Neri, you're so kind. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for raising that point of perspective, Eva. I think that's that's a very key aspect of this that we can explore. So Neri, your thoughts? Uh, so like most of you, I too, I grew up in a small island and it was everybody knew each other and my parents were very uh, you know protective we didn't really get an opportunity to mix a lot with people and then I we migrated and so I kind of grew up in this new environment new country and I I really feel like living here most of my life than I did on my island that <coughs> The environment really changed you. And that's because I lived, continue living. So uh, if I go back to the island, I can't really relate a lot to the people there because it's so different. And, and, and being in a cave, it all depends. If you come out and you see new things, uh, you might be tempted to, depends on the time. If it's a day, you will want to go back to your cave. But if you're forced to live in the new environment to see the same things over and over on a daily basis, I think it will change you whether you do it for a week, you know, and, and it's, it all has to do with timing. I feel it has to do with timing and the duration that you spend in a new environment. Thank you. Thank you, Nuri. And uh, that idea that you just mentioned of adapting to the new environment, I think, is uh, quite an interesting one because of what Plato describes uh, next in that section that we didn't, the part that we didn't read next in that section where the prisoner comes out of the cave. Uh, you know, the part that we read says that he was very confused about what he saw and questioning what he, whether what he saw was reality or not. 
but then Plato goes on to to talk about how the prisoner is actually <clears throat> then once he becomes accustomed to reality, which takes a, a while to adapt, as you said, Nuri, um, then is dragged back into the cave, doesn't in fact want to go back into that cave because now he realizes that what he was seeing on the wall were just projected images and not reality, but he's forced to go back and to act, to, to, to play the role of philosopher and to help to bring the others into this sense of, into this real sense of reality. And he says it's a very dangerous project that the the others might actually want to kill him. They might not want to adapt. They might not want to get away from what they think is their reality as they're sitting there staring at the images on the wall. So, uh, thank you for bringing that that theme of adaptation over time. I, th I think that was that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, I have Moshe next. Moshe, could you repeat your original question for me, and then I might comment. I think the original question was just sort of, you know, how we how we would see ourselves in in this context, you know, whether we whether we see any relevance of this particular analogy to our own existence. Okay. Um, the question that I was asking myself uh, as I reread what we read was. Uh, um, how would we know the difference? Uh, how would we know that what we had seen before was, to um, use the terms here, uh, inconsequential, and that what we're seeing now is more? Uh, how, how would we be able to make um, that distinction? Uh, we certainly could make the distinction that it's different. Uh, I was listening to. Um, uh, to N NPR, National Public Radio, yesterday, and they had this, um, the hidden brain, I guess, was on. And they were talking about these experiments that had been done where people uh, join a club or join a team or be, be, they, they gain some sort of affiliation. And the affiliation could be quite um, arbitrary. You know, somebody says you're on team A, somebody else says you're on, somebody says you're on team B, A, B, A, B. And the people quickly adapt to um, uh, the values of that team without um, uh, without really knowing it. They they can do it within a matter of minutes. And I, I'm thinking that in uh, the 21st century, with uh, the bombardment that we have of uh, social media and the 24-hour news cycle and all sorts of different uh, propaganda out uh, looks that we have, uh, the people can flip from one to another and not even know. The difference they, they they can't tell that one is false and one is true or that one is more and that and that the other was was um um what was the word here inconsequential and so uh i think we're well socially i think we're very much in the, the same predicament today and I, I think the question that we have to raise to this is even though we drag this guy out of the cave uh you know what sort of epistemic um uh, mechanism has to be put in place in order for him to know that what he's saying now is more real or real and that what he was saying before was inconsequential or just a shadow. Thank you for that very powerful statement. You know, I, you use the word difference twice, I think, Moshe, and and I think that was that's a critical observation there, that how do we know the difference between what some 
person says is real and what we are seeing ourselves. And uh, and then you also raise the the question of how do we how do we train somebody to understand the difference between those uh, between those things? And it's a very important it's a very important dilemma, I think, in this dialogue. In that you know here are these this guarding class of these you know kind of almost superhumans that are being trained to understand these differences who's who's training them like and, and do the do the trainers themselves have the knowledge to train on these differences um i just wanted to explain actually i've got this image on my on my screen before me uh, behind me it's actually a bit of an optical illusion i'll just move my head over to this side here um and this, I came across this yesterday. It's called Adelson's Checkerboard. It's a, a, a little optical illusion designed by a professor at MIT by the name of Adelson. And in this image, the tiles on this checkerboard, one is, one is a dark tile or a dark background. It's labeled A, which is just at the kind of top left. And then the other is in the middle, it's labeled B, and it appears to be a lighter tile. And in fact, Adelson designed this checkerboard so that, in fact, apparently, although I don't see it, apparently the color of the tile B is actually the same as the color of the tile A. And this optical illusion happens because of the way our minds infer the way that light lands on this checkerboard. Uh, and so apparently, scientifically, they are exactly the same shade. Uh, tiles A and B in this in this checkerboard. So I just wanted to to raise that because you had mentioned differences, Moshe, and this is an example of difference, and it's an example of maybe how the eyes can be deceived uh, sometimes when we see things. And so you know, as you said, we need to train ourselves to understand the differences because we can't necessarily always perceive these differences with our eyes. So uh, thank you again for that very powerful. Uh, connection that you made. Uh, we'll go to Jose. Jose. Yes, my uh, my interpretation. Yes, it's, it's, the, it's the same that everybody said, but uh, but basically, is that the the prisoners they see the world according to the to the, to the shadows. So they are the puppeteers in the back that move the the shadow the, the shades, and they this is the way that they see the world. And uh, so basically, uh, they have they have opinions. They don't, they don't have knowledge. And the the prisoner that escape the the cave, well, I think because he's talking about education, is uh, when the prison when a person like us receive education and start getting to knowledge, not uh, not just opinions. And he gets out of the cave and he see the light and he. He doesn't see now the shades, he sees the real thing, and etc. This is my, my interpretation. It's the transition between being only by opinions and they, they see the world like uh, according to others, show you the world and, and seeing the real thing. That's an interesting statement and actually touches on uh, the passage. It's probably around. 514c or so, uh, and this, this is part that we read where Socrates says, then the prisoners would in every way 
believe that the truth is nothing other than the shadows of those artifacts. And so, as you said, Jose, this is kind of this idea of transitioning from that belief or opinion into a realm of knowledge. And I think a very important part of what we'll continue to talk about today as we move into the simile of the sun uh, is this idea of the difference between the what, what Socrates describes as the visible realm, which is what we see with our eyes, and the intelligible realm, which is what we understand in our minds. And those are two different realms. Um, and so, you know, what we see, we need to then test that our understanding of that in the intelligible realm, which we can't see. And that's where that's where Socrates starts to talk about the divided line and in that testing process of, you know, is what we see in fact believable? Uh, we'll go next to Joel. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to riff a little bit off of what J.K. was saying and give an example. So I have a background in accounting, and I made a trip to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, coming from what we you know, parenthetically refer to as the first world, I felt rather superior that our systems and methods and procedures would be first world and the Philippines is not quite first world. Uh, I discovered when I was there that they had a policy in all their restaurants that the seniors get a relief from their value-added tax um, as long as the restaurant gives them a discount equivalent to the value-added tax. So I was old enough that I qualified and I was quite content to take advantage of that um, whenever I could. On reflection and, and, and coming from the what I felt was the first world, I thought, well, we have all the first world methods and ideas and policies and procedures. What could the Philippines have to teach us? On reflection, I see that the Philippines, apart from giving lip service to helping the seniors, they have embedded in their tax system a way to encourage seniors and others to take them out, socialize with them, and had a host of social benefits beyond just the numeric saving on my Big Mac or whatever the, the meal that I was having was. And this kind of took me out of my cave in a way that procedures and ideas and ways of doing things that I have always been accustomed to and had, uh, I don't know, egotistically assumed were first world and first rate might have much to learn from other parts of the world and other ways of thinking and doing it. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's my two cents for what it's worth. Interesting connection you've, you've made there, Joel. I think it's, um, it strikes me as being actually uh, particularly interesting for the next section that we're going to, or the section that we'll read in our next uh, session, which, uh, as I said earlier, is going to be 368A to 376C. Um, and this assumption on which they have built this imagined city um, is based on the, the, the idea that each one of us has a single natural aptitude, 
one one only and so that somebody in this imagined city of that Socrates and Glaucon have been imagining and Adamantus and other characters have been imagining um, has only one role to fulfill in life you know if you're if you're kind of born a farmer you will always be a farmer if you're born a cobbler you will always be a cobbler and so that kind of strikes me as and I want to discuss that assumption the next time. I think it's a particularly important discussion that um, leads to some maybe misapprehensions about Plato's Republic. Um, but maybe that's kind of this idea of the personal cave that you're talking about, you know, that that we just all live in one particular frame of reference or one particular perspective, as, as Eva was saying. Um, and uh, we need to break out of that. So, um, so that's, uh, I found that particularly a powerful idea. I wanted to raise here uh, to the, uh, well, a couple of things. So we, I think it was Moshe who mentioned, you know, the kind of powerful computer algorithms that are out there now and, and uh, you know, people's, you know, how, how people interpret them, whether they think those are, are reality or not. I think it was a number of years ago, there was, I think they called them deep fakes where, um, there was an image, I think it was of President Obama speaking, saying something that he had never in fact said. Uh, and, and the computer algorithms were good enough to make the viewers think that the president had actually said something that he never in fact said. Uh, and so maybe that's a little bit of an analogy to the images on the wall, you know, it's something that's not actually real. But I wanted to raise here as well, something that I included in the meetup notice posting, uh, which was a link to Nick Bostrom's um, ancestor, simula ancestor simulation hypothesis. And so Nick is a uh, you know, very well-known philosopher uh, at Oxford University. And this hypothesis he posted, you know, I think it was about almost 20 years ago now, and there's a link to it. Um, and, you know, so the, what he's saying in this link is how do we know that we, our own very existence right now, is not a simulation? How do we know that we are not living in a simulation? How do we know that a future civilization with infinite computing power, how do we know that this future civilization has not generated a simulation of their ancestors and that we are the living uh, images of that simulation. Um, and I thought that was a particularly powerful connection to Plato's allegory in the cave. And I was wondering what everybody else thinks about that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, as I think about it, I mean, I can think of, you know, maybe a hundred thousand reasons why I am not an ancestor simulation of a future civilization. Uh, but can I think of infinite reasons why I'm not? Uh, or are, are there some circumstances under which I might actually be that simulation that, that Nick Bostrom raised in his hypothesis? And so I was wondering what people think about, about that, if you had a chance to look at that, you know, Nick Bostrom paper. It was a relatively short paper that was, that was posted. Um, and really, even if you just read the first paragraph of it, you'd, you'd kind of understand where he was going with that. But, you know, we live in this universe of uncertainty and how do we know for sure, for absolute sure, you know, we would, we would stake our lives on it. How do we know 
that we are not that simulation? How do we know that we're not those images on the wall that, that Plato was talking about? You know, if we update Plato's analogy, um, how do we know that? And if we update Plato's analogy, you know, it's kind of a quaint analogy, you know, like none of us, probably most of us have not been in a cave. Um, and even if we were in a cave, you know, this idea of people with torches standing on the parapet, projecting images on the wall, well, that's kind of quaint. And maybe that's the way it might have been 2,400 years ago when Plato wrote this. Um, but, you know, maybe if we update that uh, analogy and, and say, well, you know, what he's really referring to with those men on the parapet with their torches is really kind of the source of everything that we see. And so whether that source is men on a parapet with torches or really just the, the source of the energy that we now know converts itself into mass at the speed of light squared, do we really know the cause or the source of everything that we're seeing? You know, do, can we go all the way back to the original source of everything that we're seeing to really and truly understand it? So I see, Nuri, your, your hand is up. Nuri, your thoughts? Uh, yes, uh, James. Uh, so I just wanted a bit of clarification. I know philosophy is great. We get into depths and depths. But, you know, I, I know you are real online and everyone else. We're chatting. But this illusion that you're, you're, you're speaking about our ancestors I mean, we, we historically have learned a lot, whether you could trace it back to our DNAs. And because if you put a child in a room and just leave the child there without any stimulation, what do you think that child would grow up, you know, just give it food and let it grow? Would they learn anything? Would they know anything? So I'm trying to understand are you saying that we are an, an illusion of our ancestors, that what they've taught us? Just wanted some clarification. Well, thanks. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not a proposition that I'm making. I'm just saying, you know, maybe there is a slight, you know, 0 0.00000 infinite number 0 0.1 chance that this is true. This was Nick Bostrom's hypothesis or proposition that he was making to say, you know, how do you really know, really know the source of everything that that's here? And so, Nari, you mentioned, you know, you said, you know, that I'm real because you're seeing me on the screen, but you're actually not seeing me on the screen. You're seeing pixels of me on the screen. And furthermore, we now know that the brain operates with a one-tenth of a second delay in everything that it sees because it takes the brain like it takes one-tenth of a second for the images from those pixels to go through your eyes reach the visual cortex and meaning to be fabricated so we know we know this this is how the brain works with this one-tenth of a second delay so even though you're seeing the pixels of me on the screen you're seeing the pixels of me on the screen as i was saying things one-tenth of a second ago so you're not really seeing me, you're seeing an image of me. And, you know, this is kind of modern neuroscience. This is something I learned from listening to David Eagleman's The Brain um, series that was done on PBS maybe half a dozen years ago. You know, this, this kind of perception of things. And so, you know, again, I mean, yes, if you were to travel to my home and see me sitting here, yes, you might think I'm real, but just to see me on the screen, how do you how do you know I'm not one of those deep fakes like I was talking about that that they did of the 
the former president saying something that he didn't say. So um, it, well, it's an interesting well, question. Yeah. yeah, but but let's say sorry, sorry. I know um, TJ JK has his hand up, but mm-hmm. just it, it's like yeah. So if I see you drive by your home and you come out in your front yard, and you would look the same as your image, and you may not look like JK, then I know it was a fake, right? But you your pixels are as similar to what you look like in person. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, and I, I, you raise a very good, important point that I think we should discuss. I mean, it, it's at what point do we get absolute knowledge of who's real and or what's real and what's not real, or is it even possible to get absolute knowledge? Um, we can certainly be very close to certain, uh, I think, but is it possible to be absolutely certain? And and that's what I'd like to explore. I mean, that, that's the kind of hypothesis that Nick Bostrom was was raising. So uh, so thank you for raising that. It's a very good point. I mean, it, it's, it strains credulity to think that, you know, what we're seeing is not real. Uh, but maybe we need to kind of test that always in our minds. So we'll go to JK and then to Moshe. JK? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, um, and the reason why you know, as you're saying, like Nick Boston is saying, is that we don't really know. And if you're, if you dispute that kind of doubt, then you just look around, you know, or turn on TV and you and the news and you see how many people disagree uh, on what is the truth, what is the political truth. Even now, who is the real president? <laughs> right? And, uh, and you have all these uh, conspiracy theories floating around, and you have so many uh, religious disagreements—not uh, just religious, but just just you know uh, common disagreements about what is real. And and on the um, uh, you know social media, there's all these different uh, views that people subscribe to, and so that indicates that there is a you know prevailing you know common prevailing disagreement about what is real. And so that's why people um, like us gravitates toward philosophy where, where the question is real um, about what is real, you know? The question is, is there, and you can't deny that, that there is doubt about what is real. And even among philosophers, among scientists, scientists, you know, disagree about what is real. And even uh, all the scientists uh, as uh, now uh, are warning us about global warming. You know, 99% of them are telling us that. But then there, there's massive numbers of people who disagree with the, uh, the, uh, the idea of global warming. And even with all the, you know, uh, you know, news about the forest fires and storms and so forth. And, and uh melting uh, glaciers, you know, rising oceans and so forth. You know, there are, people still deny that. And so, you know, so that kind of, uh, you know, doubt, the prevailing doubt and disagreement among people indicates that that we don't know what, what the absolute truth is. Very interesting the way, the way that you put that, JK, you know, this, this idea of this potential disconnect between cause and effect, you know, you, you rate, use the example of climate change, you know, so we can see the effect 
uh, of whatever is happening is rising global temperatures. I mean, I think people, you know, can, can measure, they've measured over history and they see that, you know, we're something like two degrees above the, the historical norm or something. But then the cause of that, as you said, is something that's very much in dispute. I mean, some people, I mean, a lot of scientists will say the cause is human activity, uh, you know, causing pollution and greenhouse gases and all of that. But a subsection of people will say that, uh, that there are these trends in time and these global warming events happen without human intervention. They just happen. And so that's what these people believe. And so we're left here with this, you know, potential disconnect between belief and knowledge. And I think a very important theme in this section of our reading today is this whole connection between cause and effect. Um, and that goes right back to one of my favorite, my first the first Plato dialogue that I was exposed to was the Mino in which um, Socrates says, all knowledge is recollection. And then he goes on to say uh, that it's recollection of the account of the reasons why. And that's something I think we will touch on today in our discussion of the divided line. You know, it's that account of the reasons why that we have to make in our minds that connects cause and effect. And maybe another way to say cause and effect is subject and object. Uh, and that's a particularly important thing as we get into the uh, revolution that's about to happen with computing. You know, so to take Nick Bostrom's um, hypothesis even further, he's talking about this uh, advanced civilization in the future that has infinite computing power. Well, that's potentially something that we will get with quantum computing. And those who have been on this podcast before know that you know quantum computing is a is a pastime of mine. In fact, yesterday I was on a quantum computing webinar talking about the challenges in quantum communication. So we're connecting with the quantum properties of the universe to, to uh, you know, entangle our knowledge in, in such a way that subject and object uh, will be superimposed uh, so that subject and object will be simul simultaneously active. And so how will we distinguish between subject and object uh, when we get into the quantum realm, which is what we're trying to do with quantum computing. So it's a very important situation in terms of understanding cause and effect and the connection between them and the order of those. So I, I thank you for raising that. I think you used a very good example with, with climate change there, JK. We'll go to Moshe. Moshe? Well, we're really jumping right into the center of it, aren't we? Indeed. Uh, I, I just want to point out uh, that um, uh, the, the Greeks, uh, start, starting from uh, Thales, were materialists, materialists and uh, at the time of the writing of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, uh, the Greek mind did not distinguish between man and nature. Uh, the the, the distinction between man and nature came uh, years after that. And I think it's an artificial um, uh, disjunction. Uh, your, your example that you gave of, from Nick, uh, who I have not read, uh, uh, sounds very much uh, Cartesian. Uh, because, I mean, this was, a, you know, this is the question that is raised in Descartes by the uh, by the evil genius. And, uh, you know, to put it in modern terms and to 
make everybody think that we're somebody else's ancestors and things like that is 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 really just uh, you know evil genius um, um, 2.0 okay but this distinction that Descartes made um, I feel is uh, is illegitimate um, if you remember Gilbert Ryle uh, in his concept of mind uh, talks about you know he, he wants to understand um, how we can have this mind-body uh, differentiation and how we can think of the mind as the ghost in the machine. And the ghost in the machine can be, you know, manipulated by the evil genius and it can be made to think that it's, uh, you know, some um, uh, future civilization's uh, ancestor. And Ryle points out, I think rightly, that, that um, uh, people who hold this uh, idea that there's that there's the mind is the ghost in the machine and is not connected with it um, are, are are making what he calls a category mistake, which I'm going to refer to as a, a as a linguistic mistake or a mistake in meaning. And he gives the example of somebody coming uh, to Cambridge and you know being shown the houses of the dons and the libraries and the quad and where the, the students are. And he says, okay, well, I've seen the dons house and I've seen, you know, the administration's house and I've seen the students, but where's the university? And it's a category mistake because he doesn't realize that the university is just this collection and, and uh, of objects and processes. And so Ryle is, is 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 suggesting to us, and I, I take the suggestion uh, rather warmly, that we're using the concept of knowledge inappropriately. Okay, and this brings me to two points. One, it brings me to G. E. Moore's point when he was talking, uh, when he was giving his defense of common sense. You know, if you would try to tell me that I'm not really here, that I'm not really a person, or that I'm a simulation. Uh, you're, you're, you're denying common sense. And his proof is a, a little hokey that it is, is that, you know, I have my hands, two hands, presumably. And uh, if you were trying to do that, you'd really be trying to make me insane. You'd be trying to make me a question that would ask me a question that if I would take it seriously, uh, I would go mad. Which brings me <clears throat> to the final point. We know a lot philosophically about knowledge, not conclusively, when we're talking about propositional knowledge. If I say, I know that P, uh, I, I, know that the, I, I know that the grass is green, I know that the woman in the, in the painting is wearing a hat, I know that because I have a belief and I have evidence that justifies that belief. And there are problems with certainty. And then there's Gettier's, uh, you know, little queer thing where I think he equivocates. But generally, I mean that I have, uh, I have a justified true belief. And that is what we, that's what we call knowledge. And I'm in the world. Uh, I'm, uh, I know that I am real. Uh, if I know that you appear to me as a box and pixels and things like that. Uh, but I have no doubt that if I was walking down uh, Young Street in Toronto, and I bumped into you, there would be James just right there like that, okay? And so I think that this is, um, it is certainly a legitimate question to be raised, the question that you're, you're, you're raising, 
But I do think that our common use, that, that our public use of a common language makes it such that if we look at that language and how we use it, we can dissolve these problems and you know, do a kind of do a kind of therapy. That means that while philosophy is the most important uh, discipline to me, and it has taken me years and years of, of studying and working on these puzzles to come to the to come to that statement that philosophy enables us to do mental therapy, enables us, enables us to be able to see um, what see that we're in the world and that we can have knowledge of the world. Well, thank you, Moshe, for raising it. You've raised a number of very good and important points. I think, you know, certainly the use of Descartes and, you know, this, uh, or the reference to Descartes and, you know, perhaps his method of, you know, doubt, you know, re reducing, re taking all of the doubt out of the picture and leaving only himself as that which he cannot doubt, uh, or as his mind is that which he cannot doubt. But, I think you you raise some issues with that, and and then certainly you know this idea of common sense, which you you talked about. I think it's, it's something that I think we can explore, and certainly the the other idea that you talked about of justified true belief. Um, you made the very interesting point about our our agreement on the symbols and the language that we use to justify our belief. And I think that's a very important point that Plato was talking about in, in Phaedrus that we talked about in the first season. Uh, and that's something I'd like to explore. And, and certainly I think what you said uh, really helps to lead us into that discussion on the divided line, which I think we'll get to in probably about a half an hour. Because uh, I want to, I want to touch on that. But I think what you you said really, you know, leads us into that discussion. You know, how do we justify our beliefs? And and Socrates gives us one particular way of justifying our beliefs with this this uh, this divided line that he talks about in in the readings that we've got today. So um, so thank you for raising those uh, those very important points. I'm just wondering if anybody else has uh, any thoughts on that particular passage that we started reading, the analogy of the, uh, or the allegory of the cave. Uh, we have Nuri. Nuri? No, you just uh, mentioned about Socrates, and uh, he, he also um, said something about democracy, that we should, uh, people should, you know, choose on their leaders on knowledge. And you know, we, we get back to the point of science and, uh, you know, I mean, it's taught us a lot. Language, we, we all give grass a green color, so we all know what, we, what, it, what it signifies. It's green. And, you know, we can't, can't discount science that it has brought us forward a lot. Um, yeah, so... Just don't want to get off topic, but that's my thoughts on about Socrates and democracy and um, being a philosopher. He he thinks we should hire, you know, people. We should elect our leaders on their knowledge and not on, you know, um, kind of beliefs. Thank you, Nuri. You raised the the. Well, Socrates actually raises some objections about democracy as well as other political systems uh, towards the end of the Republic, and we'll get to that um, later on in the season, I think. But you know, certainly, certainly, 
what you said, I think, has bears some relationship to this allegory of the cave in terms of uh, whether we believe in the images that we see before us. And I think the point that Socrates makes later about democracy is that uh, because our beliefs can be subject to manipulation, uh, I think, as Moshe was saying earlier, with, with the kind of algorithms that are going around the world today, sometimes can manipulate us that people act on beliefs that are false and uh, don't necessarily test those beliefs. So it's, it's a key point and a key connection between what happens later in the Republic, you know, this discussion of different political systems, including democracy, and this allegory of the cave and looking at shadows that we're talking about here today. Um, so we'll go back to Moshe. Uh, I just wanted to... Um... I mean, you, you said what I was going to say. I just wanted to point out that, uh, that Socrates was highly anti-democratic. I mean, he, he didn't like that idea at all. Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly, you know, I think he advocates for the philosopher king, I think is the, the term that's most often used. Um, and so this idea that, you know, only with philosophy can a, can a leader properly lead, I think is, is the key, but it's, it's a theme that I think we need to keep in mind for sure, as we explore the, the Republic in a number of uh, sessions, um, this season. We'll go to JK. Yeah, this kind of, uh, idea of, um, you know, in a, why, why did he believe in a democracy? Because, um. He understood that the, um, the, the public sphere, the social order, the symbolic order can be um, manipulated and depends on who's in control of that um, symbolic order, right? And so, yeah, everybody can share and, you know, uh, a common, common um, perception of what is real, you know, but it, that common perception can be manipulated by you know, you know, within that's the within in that symbolic order by people in power and so every society has this kind of common understanding that everybody supposedly are supposed to share and we have ours even though we claim to be free and so even in our democratic so-called democratic society people um affirm their freedom yeah to the point where it's being manipulated for, uh, to their own disadvantage, to their own uh, against their own interests. So you, you see it in these uh, this movement of, uh, of of you know groups of people who are even against uh, wearing a mask, not just against vaccination, but against wearing a mask, even for their kids. So there's a kind of uh, you know control there of that symbolic order, you know, and uh, so. Yeah, you know, we we all share the same uh, you know symbolic works supposedly, and we're supposed to understand what the truth is, right? What the what is real? But there's a there's a you know some quite a bit of disagreement about what is real, depending on who's in control of it and so forth, and manipulating it. It's a very interesting use of the word or the, the term symbolic order. Uh, fascinated by the word order, actually, in that, you know, and, and again, it takes me back to what you said before about climate change. So now you've used the now you've used the connection between cause and effect of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're in now and the example of masks. You know, we we know that masks prevent the transmission 
of COVID-19, and yet there are those who uh, object to that. Um, and so maybe that's similar to the, you know, the, the climate change or the climate change denial um, example that you gave before, you know, and again, this confusion between cause and effect or symbolic order, I think, is, as you've now used. So it's a very interesting, you know, that, that idea of ordering, ordering of what happens first and what happens second. And, you know, again, as I said earlier, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, knowledge being the account of the reasons why. And when we go back to figure out why something has happened, we have to go back and figure out all of the causes, you know, that each cause has a cause itself and what's the original cause of it all. Um, so I think that's, uh, we've had some very good ideas here. You know, it's, uh, I'm not advocating for Nick Bostrom's, uh, proposition. I'm not sure that he's advocating for it either. He just puts it out there as a, uh, as an idea that we might explore in terms of just really understanding, you know, do we, do we understand the cause of everything that we see in the world today? Um, and so maybe, maybe this would be a good time to, uh, turn to one of the other themes uh, in this dialogue, which is the simile of the sun. And let me just project uh, this on the screen. Um, and I'll just go, let me just go up to this. Uh, we'll, we'll do the simile of the sun, and then we can talk about the divided line, which is kind of Socrates' suggestion as to how we might um, how we might distinguish between, you know, that which is real and that which isn't. Um, so this is from 507B to 508A. Um, you know, in, in, in this section, uh, and maybe I'll just read it here. You know, Socrates says, we say that there are many beautiful things and many good things and so on for each kind. And in this way, we distinguish them in words. And beauty itself and good itself and all the things that we hereby set down as many, reversing ourselves, we set down according to a single form of each, believing that there is but one and call it the being of each. And we say that the many beautiful things and the rest are visible, but not intelligible, while the forms are intelligible, but not visible. With what part of ourselves do we see visible things? So uh, here, just as before he's asked this question, Socrates has segregated between the visible and the intelligible. The, these are different realms. The intelligible is in the mind, the visible is in the eyes. And so then Glaucon responds, uh, with what part of ourselves do we see visible things is the question that Socrates has asked. And Glaucon replies, with our sight. And Socrates goes on to say, and so audible things are heard by hearing, and with our other senses, we perceive all the other perceptible things. Have you considered how lavish the maker of our senses was in making the power to see and be seen? Well, consider it this way. Do hearing and sound need another kind of thing in order for the former to hear and the latter to be heard? A third thing in whose absence the one won't hear or the other be heard. And then Gaukran says, well, no, they, they need nothing else. Socrates says, uh, goes on to say, and if there are any others that need such a thing, there can't be many of them. Can you think of one? Glaucon says, no, I can't. Socrates says, sight may be present in the eyes, and the one who has it may try to use it, and the colors may be present in things, but unless a third kind of thing is present, which is naturally adapted for this very purpose, you know that's, that sight will see nothing and the colors will remain unseen. Glaucon says, what kind of thing do you mean? Socrates says, I mean what you call light, 
Glaucon says, you're right. Socrates uh, ends this little section by saying, then it isn't an insignificant kind of link that connects the sense of sight and the power to be seen. It is a more valuable link than any other linked things uh, have got, if, thing, if indeed light is something valuable. Um, so I just wanted to raise this section here because I've, I think the connection, first of all, to emphasize this difference that Socrates is making between the visible, which is what we kind of explored in that allegory of the cave, you know, the visible images on the wall and, and the intelligible. Uh, and, you know, th this distinction of, of the intelligible in the mind and the visible is what the eyes say. Uh, in this interesting section, Socrates is saying, well, the sun actually gives us uh, the power to see and to be seen. So it gives us a power that we can exercise ourselves and it gives others the power to see us. And I think what I'm, where, I'm, where I wanted to go with this is kind of, again, this object or, or this um, uh, coincidence of subject and object, the coincidence, the coincidence of cause and effect. Uh, and he's saying here that the sun is kind of that that third thing which connects or links the cause and the effect. Uh, and I'm just wondering what people think about this simile of the sun here. Um, and he's, he's using it as a simile because he's saying that, you know, knowledge is like this, you know, knowledge, we have the power to know, and we, we have the power to receive knowledge and to know things. So let me just, uh, I see we have a few hands up. We'll start with Moshe and then go to JK. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, this idea of the good raises a jillion questions. Uh, going back to what can be known uh, as opposed to what we can have opinion about, uh, the forms are the things that the mind can directly apprehend, and they constitute, you know, the true, the beautiful, and the just, and they're permanent and uh, unchangeable. But now, Plato, and, oh, and let me just put that on the shelf for a second. I want to go back to this, uh, in order to illuminate that, I, I want to go back to this idea that that you need to have light in order to be seen uh, and that no other thing has, uh, you know, no other thing uh, except for sight has a medium like that that's required, a third thing. But if sound also has that kind of property, uh, I cannot hear or be heard without some sort of gaseous medium, uh, and in this case, air uh, being shared uh, between us because otherwise, you know, my vocal cords, uh, you know, changing the, you know, the amplitude and the frequency of the, of the puffs of air that are coming out of my mouth would never be, uh, would never be accessible to a, to a hearer. But so just, I want to put that bad physics aside and go to the idea that now we need to have a, a medium, the idea of the good in order to be able to, I mean, because the sun is going to turn out to be the idea of the good. I, you know, I, I know I'm probably jumping ahead here. But that means that the things that are true, perfect, unchangeable, and real, the forms, are now, in principle, unknowable 
unless there is something else out there that causes us to know it. And that itself must be something that is without a cause or else you're, the idea of the good has to be something that is causeless, that causes everything else. Uh, otherwise, there would be an infinite regress and we would never have any knowledge at all. So Plato's put us in a position where we have this causeless thing that causes the objects of our knowledge to be intelligible. And I take this, I take this as a problem because the, the, the forms themselves were supposed to be the things that I could rely on, and now I can't even rely upon them. Well, you've touched on uh, a number of ideas. You know, certainly the good is something that we can look at uh, actually in the next part of this reading, uh, which I'll show on the screen momentarily. Um, and so we can explore what Socrates says about the good. Um, certainly you've raised the idea of the forms. And for those who haven't been with us before, you know, the, the forms in Plato are kind of the, the ideas which are only sensible uh, in the intelligible realm, not not accessible to the five senses, but uh, but accessible only in in the mind, which is uh, you know beyond the five senses. Um, so that is the, thank you for raising the forms. You know, certainly some, something that we'll go back to. You know, the forms are kind of the you know the the changes. If I think back to my favorite part of Timaeus twenty uh, eight A in Timaeus, you know the the forms are that which are uh, and never become, which is distinct from the realm of that which is always becoming, but never is. Um, so, you know, to, I mean, to keep that in mind, I think would be, would be helpful. I think what he's saying here with the sun is that the sun kind of offers this, this two-way path. Um, you know, we know now that this, the, the, light or the, the, what we call the photon, the, the, the so-called particle of light, is massless. And, you know, mass in physics is that which has resistance. And so the photon has no resistance. Um, so the photon is, you know, this kind of massless, you know, without resistance path that that illuminates things in a way that I can see them, but people can also see me. And he's saying here also that colors, you know, colors we might, if it's dark, we won't see the difference in colors. Uh, but when there's light, we see the difference in colors. So I think what he's trying to say here is that this, we, we depend on this, this force to kind of provide us with this two-way path to, to comprehend things and so that others can also comprehend us. Uh, I think that's what he's trying to say with Assembly of the Sun, but interested in what others think about this as well. So we'll go to JK. Yeah, it's uh, this uh, distinction between the, um, you know, the things that are, um, you know, that uh, are perceived by the senses and the the mind, the intelligible is he is he like uh, you know forecasting um, you know the the distinction made by Descartes you know years later about this uh, about the, uh, the the mind distinct from you know the extension of the I mean it just it sounds like they're almost a very uh, very similar kind of argument that Descartes is is making. But more emphatically, maybe you know, like um, I think, therefore I am. And he's saying that, uh, and here he's uh, the intelligible part. Plato's saying the intelligible 
is is you know is the being is what it is and and everything else that uh, that is perceived by the senses is 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 copies of of the of the mind and uh, it's becoming it's changing and you you can't uh, you know it's uh, it's not something that you can really uh, um, uh, you know rely on for for what is what's real right so it's it's pretty interesting that uh, this kind of yeah you know it's it's a kind of the very similar theme that uh, but is he is he making is is he also making the distinction between um, the subject and object here also you know the the, the intelligible is a subject right and the and the things in the world that are perceived are are objects well you raise a good question i think the i take the subject to be the cause and the object is that which is seen or observed so the subject is kind of the observer and the the object is the observed and in here he's saying that the the sun is the force that allows the connection or the link between subject and, and object um and you raised the you know descartes idea i think you were maybe talking about the duality of you know body and mind in descartes um it kind of makes me wonder or think about plato's idea of the or socrates idea about the soul having three parts you know the the soul is the um <clears throat> you know the the thumos or the spirit or the drive uh the appetites which are like the desire and then it's always governed by reason and so maybe you know maybe descartes was more focused on the soul is kind of maybe two parts, you know, divided between body and and uh, and mind. Um, but I think maybe Socrates is is you know adding this third element here, and and he uses this simile or example of the sun as kind of the third element that connects or that allows that connection between uh, cause and effect, um, allows us to see and to be seen. Uh, and I think that's what he's trying to do here with this uh, with this section. Uh, it's course, a, you know, sorry. Of course, Descartes uh, eventually, right, mm -hmm. posits a God that um, you know uh, unites the duality of the mm -hmm. of the mind and the and the body, right? Mm -hmm. So is Descartes uh, God? You know, uh, you know, uh, analogous to the. The sun here in uh, in Plato. That's a fascinating question, actually. And as you say that, it just I'm just looking for the section here. I think Socrates actually says that the sun is the god. And I'm just I'm looking for that section. I'll find that section because uh, I think you you actually just raise a very important connection there very important link if i if i play on the words here that socrates has used i you know i notice that socrates here by the way in the part that i'm highlighting uh where he responds to glaucon he says i mean what you call light so i wonder what socrates calls light he he says he says what glaucon calls light it's not necessarily what socrates calls light so um anyway it's a, it's an interesting idea so i'll look for that section uh thank you for raising that but we'll go to to Joel, who has his hand up. Joel? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'd like to focus a little bit on this uh, 
this idea of causality because my uh, my take on this or my understanding, which I always uh, you know freely admit may be totally mistaken, is that uh, what goes on in the mind is uh, an attempt to mediate and uh, provide a uh, a structure for what is absorbed by the senses and that may be too abstract so let me see if I can fill this in with a, a practical example and I'll and I'll use uh, I'll use the medical world and I'll use uh, a particular malady which I understand prior to COVID anyway was the most frequent cause of hospital admissions worldwide and has been known of since the time of the Greeks and that's called kidney stones. So there is a phenomenon where uh, small stone particles are formed in the kidneys and they're excruciatingly painful if they move from the kidneys and try to be expelled through the urine into the body. And I had one of those. In fact, I had multiple ones. And at the time that I had them, which is probably a half a century ago, um, the, um, the, the, the state of scientific knowledge was that they would examine the stones that were expelled from the body in a laboratory. Remember, this is a phenomenon that's been going on for 2,000 years and very well known and occurs with great frequency even now in modern times. And they determined that they were primarily composed of calcium. So that the traditional um, diagnosis from the doctors was to restrict your intake of calcium. Don't drink milk, you don't have cheese. Um, and, you know, of course, I followed that regimen. And I had uh, multiple occurrences over the years. After about 30 years of treatment, the um, uh, medical um, facility discovered that people who had been given this diagnosis would have weakened bones. And it was recommended that they would have uh, another form of medical test called a DEXA scan to test their bones. And sure enough, in many cases, their bones were weakened. And other medications would be prescribed to correct that if possible. Well, as it turns out, only in recent years, perhaps in the last 20 years, did they discover that the process that went on in the mind to interpret the kidney stones was completely wrong. And it was not a shortage of calcium, uh, a, a surplus of calcium in the diet, but a shortage that caused the kidney stones. Because the mechanism that formed the kidney stones was a different kind of substance which needed calcium to be expunged from the body. I think it's called oxalic acid. So the medical um, profession decided that they would then start 180 degree reversal of their recommended treatment plan 
uh, and tell people to take calcium, which I have been on ever since. And thankfully, it's been, uh, you know, preventative and may have even helped my bones to recover to a certain extent. So these are referred to as iatropic diseases or diseases caused by doctors or the medical profession. So that whatever happens outside, you know, however the senses are combined to provide a causal explanation isn't always correct. In the case of kidney stones, it took 2,000 years to discover that it was, although intuitively it seemed sensible, it was 180 degrees wrong. Uh, so what that does to our discussion, I'm not sure, but there are always conditions of less than virtual certainty when we're dealing with causality. Interesting comment that you make in an example that you use, Joel, in terms of that idea between cause or that connection between cause and, eff and effect and that idea of ordering of those connections, uh, which makes me think of what JK said earlier about the symbolic order and, and the way the mind works. Um, you know, in fact, as I there's there's some you know debate as to what the real purpose of the Republic is and uh you know is it meant to be a commentary on political ordering or is it meant to be kind of a psychological commentary um i really i'm really seeing the republic as as more of a psychological commentary on on how people's minds work and so the example that you used of you know going down a particular path you know, the, the, the mindset that people employed to understand kidney stones, in your example, uh, wound up being, you know, quite the opposite of what it should have been. And so it, it's an interesting example of, of the ordering of cause and effect, uh, which I think is so critical, especially as, as we get into this era of very powerful technology in which that ordering can have a significant effect on the way people behave. Um, so thank you for that example. We will go to Jacob. Jacob, welcome to Plato's Pod. And uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think there's a connection between, uh, not think, I mean, I know there's a connection between politics and healthy politics and healthy minds. So maybe that's where he's coming from. Like we have to have a healthy mind in order to have a healthy government. So, because the government is made up of people, and if the people are corrupted, if the people do not see clarity, uh, clearly, if they lack lucidity, then that would be reflected in the way the government is, is managed. And we see that today, where we have people who are in seats of public service here in the United States and are totally corrupted, confused, living in fear, and that's the government we have now. And the way it's functioning with all its wars and killing and neglect of the people is reflecting that. So, yeah, he's saying that we have to have a free mind. You know, the mind must be liberated, you know, come out of the matrix, you know. And the matrix is the world of ideas, beliefs, stories, experiences, all of which are illusionary because they were put together by previous by the previous programming, previous experiences, knowledge, which is limited. So the limited is reshaping the limited. You never, so you're never with the whole, you never see the truth, the truth is the whole. And um, so we have to find a way to free the mind, to awaken 
the innate capacity that we all have for wisdom. Um, right now, thought has taken over. Thinking has taken over. And uh, we have not awakened the capacity uh, of wisdom. There's two intelligence, the intelligence of thinking, the intelligence of memory, passive memory, and the intelligence of wisdom, which doesn't originate in the brain. It has nothing to do with the material process of the brain, has nothing to do with memory, has nothing to do with knowledge. And, um, and the children are ready at the earliest age to be set free. Um, so the only question is, how does this take place, you know, within, the, within a person? Well, you, you make a, a fascinating point there, Jacob, and, and thank you for that. The, uh, you know, use the, the, the analogy of the matrix. Uh, I assume you were referring to the movie. Yes. Uh, which I think is. Uh, well, it's not just the movie, but yeah. it's also the word matrix, right. matrix. Right. Ma is mother, uh, material body. The thought mm. is a material process of the brain. Mm. And um, so tricks. So it's the matrix. It's the tricks of ma, the tricks of thought. Mm. Thought is tricking you all the time. Like right now, you think you're seeing me. You're not seeing me. You're seeing you. You're seeing your version. Your version of me, which is you. Uh, when you look at the tree, when you look at the cloud, when you look at your children, you're trapped in the matrix. That is the matrix. It's your own virtual reality bubble making machinery, which is the result of the listener, the thinker, the experiencer, the chooser, the critic, which is the me, which is a bundle of memory, active memory, actually. Active memory, it's acting as the interpreter, the experiencer, the chooser, etc. So uh, it's all the it's the bundle of all your ideas, your beliefs, your concept, you know, your identifications with this group, that group, your entire identity. It's not just one fragment of the me. It's the entire structure, um, which now is listening, interpreting, taking my words evaluating them, analyzing them, uh, comparing them with other knowledge that you have, and then recording them, making them into ideas or beliefs or concepts or points of view. And all that while, that means listening is not taking place. Listening is on another level. It has nothing to do with the intellect. Well, so experiencing yeah. is not taking place. Yeah. You're just collecting experiences, and each experience is shaped by the previous experiences you've had, right. which is limited. So this is what's going on, and we have to become aware of what is happening to our, to the mind, to our, to the brain, actually. <clears throat> and we must free the brain from, you know, this process. Let's explore yeah. that, Jacob. I'd mm. like to, uh, you know, I'd like to get some thoughts of others on that because I think what you talk about does relate to what Socrates says about the divided line. So I think I'd like to move to the divided line in about two minutes. Uh, but keep in mind that that idea that you raised of the freedom of the mind, because I think the divided line talks about the use of reason as a way that we can free the mind, that the mind is not trapped to the, you know, these visible images and is not trapped only in the intelligible realm, but it's somehow that which combines both the visible and the intelligible realm that really maybe frees the mind. And, and I like the way that you put that. You also talked about the innate capacity for wisdom, which I think relates to, if I remember it was Nari who mentioned earlier that idea of, you know, if a child is born, 
and is really not given any education, what would happen to that child? And I think maybe there's been some examples uh, of such studies uh, that have happened in the past. And so maybe we keep that in mind. I just wanted to go uh, here to this section that I've got on the screen, uh, which continues the simile of the sun. So this is 508B to 509B. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read three paragraphs here, uh, starting with Socrates saying, you know that when we turn our eyes to things whose colors are no longer illuminated uh, by the light of day, but by night lights, the eyes are dimmed and seem nearly blind as if clear vision were no longer in them. Yet whenever one turns them on things illuminated by the sun, they see clearly and vision appears in those very same eyes, Glaucon says, indeed. So Socrates continues, well, understand the soul in the same way. When it focuses on something illuminated by truth and what is, it understands, knows, and apparently possesses understanding. But when it focuses on what is mixed with obscurity and what comes to be and passes away, it opines and is dimmed, changes its opinions this way and that, and seems bereft of understanding. Glaucon confirms it does seem that way. And Socrates goes on here, and this is, this is a part that I you know, we could spend a little bit of time on, although we're running a little bit short, we've got about 20 minutes left. Socrates says, so that what gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower is the form of the good. So here he's talking about the good and here he's telling us what the form of the good is. And then he says, and though it is the cause of knowledge and truth, it is also an object of knowledge. Both knowledge and truth are beautiful things, but the good is other and more beautiful than they. In the visible realm, Light and sight are rightly considered sun-like, sun -like, but it is wrong to think that they are the sun. So here it is right to think of knowledge and truth as good-like, but wrong to think that either of them is the good, for the system for the good is yet more prized. Glaucon concludes by saying, this is an inconceivably beautiful thing you're talking about if it provides both knowledge and truth and is superior to them in beauty. So Glaucon is saying that there's three things that come out of this conclusion. And um, very interested to, to see what people think about this idea that Socrates says, so that what gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower is the form of the good. So, so gives truth to the things known. So we the objects that we know are true, but it also gives the power to know. Uh, and so just wondering and what people think can about Can truth this. be known? Can truth be known? Yeah. So we'll go to Moshe. Your thoughts on this, Moshe? I just want to go to the line before. And though it is the cause of knowledge and truth, it is also an object of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So is that the same thing as saying that the good is both, uh, is at the same time the cause and the effect? In other words, the good is its own cause or as we used to say in the study of religion, that it's sui generis. Yeah, that that is, so the question you raise, I, I think is the key to this. And that's the way I read this, that the good is both the cause and the effect. Well, that certainly violates any sort of scientific, I'll use that term loosely, or uh, uh, the, the way someone like, um, Someone like a, a, a later scientist, let's say in the 1800s or 1900s or 20th century, 
would think about cause and effect. Uh, you know, they're distinct things. Uh, without relying too much on Hume, you know, Hume tells us that we can separate cause and effect in the imagination. And because all, um, all uh, images come from impressions and there's, uh, there's, there are no images without uh, impressions, that would mean that the impression of the cause and the impression of the effect can be separate. It follows from that that they can't be the same. So I, I just, I find this very mystical and, and it, it just goes beyond what in the Western tradition, we, we think of cause and effect. It's a, I think it's a valid point that you raise, and it certainly does seem to go against intuition, because I think we, you know, we all have this sense that there is an order of things, and and cause and effect can't be the same thing at the same time. I think that's what you're saying, and, and certainly that seems to be a natural intuition. Um, I'm wondering, though, you know, as the knowledge of science, and particularly the science of the quantum realm, is growing, uh, we know that there is in the quantum realm this effective superposition in which cause and effect are in fact superposed and they are instantaneous and simultaneous. Uh, and so that's maybe one thought that we could explore. So so I appreciate your raising that because I think it is certainly a, a point that uh, many could see and object to with, with this. Um, so we'll go to JK and then to Eva. JK? Well, according to science, um, the scientific um, understanding of cause and effect yeah, yeah. science is only taking a a a segment of that uh, chain of cause and effect right and you mentioned the quantum realm even though we're you know um you know um indulging in the um, in the um, understanding of that quantum realm we haven't gotten to the to the ultimate um, ultimate cause right uh, the ultimate cause is it a string? Is it string theory, or is it um, is some other uh, material element, right? And but if you think of the cause and effect within a chain, uh, inside the, this chain of cause and effect, what is the ultimate cause? Well, if the uh, the ultimate cause would have to be also an effect, wouldn't it? Uh, isn't that Spinoza's um, argument that? Um, the ultimate um, cause is a substance that it's its own. Uh, it's uh, that it causes itself, and its effect is also, uh, uh, you know, um, a, a cause, right? So it's kind of a, um, you know. Uh, so I think that's what it means. So the ultimate good is 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 a cause of itself, isn't it? So the effect uh, the effect is also its cause. Unless you know, unless you only see the good as as part of the only one segment of that chain. Well, thank you for raising Spinoza. It's, uh, Spinoza is a philosopher I would like to spend more time with, so I will uh, I will endeavor to do that. I, I think you know, as you mentioned, you can the ultimate would the ultimate cause also be an effect? That's an interesting idea, and I I don't have any views on that, but I'm wondering what others think about that. Uh, you did use the, the term chain and what you just said, and that makes me think again about what Socrates said about sun being a link. Just thinking about words, you know, chains having links and the sun maybe providing that link in that 
particular simile that that Socrates used. So, so we've got some interesting ideas here. You know, is you know, can cause and effect be simultaneous? Uh, Moshe, I think, raised the the natural intuition that they can't. Um, J.K., you know, you've you've talked about the ultimate cause maybe also being an effect. Um, and so I'm wondering what others think. We'll go to Eva and then to Moshe. Yeah, thank you, James. Great discussion, everyone. I would like to wonder with you all now, what if we thought of the knowledge as a process uh, and a process of becoming in scientific way and, and in philosophical way, considering we are born as something and we change the structure. And when it's a human being, we call it like growing. We don't, we are not trying to stop at a place. We say growing or we say maturing. I am wondering, doesn't societies mature or grow or change? So if that's happening, what if we took the knowledge or even scientific data as growing process. So then nothing we know is super accurate. And then can we become more flexible with what we know? I just wanted to uh, wander on this with you now. Thank you. That's an interesting idea, that idea of flexibility that you use there, Eva. The, um, and also, you know, your reference to knowledge being used in a process of becoming, which again takes me back to Timaeus 28a, which is, you know, that distinction that Socrates made between that which always is and never becomes, uh, and that which is always becoming but never is. We, being you know, our bodies being physical objects inhabit that second realm, the, the realm of uh, that which always becomes but never is. Whereas the forms, uh, Plato's forms would be in the realm of that which always is but never becomes. So we've got this mixture of two different realms, you know, and, and so we're in the physical realm that is always changing and, you know, is knowledge the, the, the key to understanding that process of change in the order in which that change occurs. Um, so thank you for that. And we'll go back to Moshe. Um, Eva, I want to give you intellectual uh, comfort. Um, I know that I'm sitting in a chair. Uh, I am very confident that you know that you are also sitting in a chair. And I know that two plus two equals four. And so you, you know that as well. So there's, there are things that, that can be known. But that's uh, just a side to make you feel more comfortable. Uh, I want to go back to what uh, J.K. was saying about Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza, uh, although he refers to uh, substance as God, he also refers uh, to nature as substance. And he says that substance can be uh, has many uh, different attributes, infinite attributes, uh, but we can conceive them under the attribute of extension and under the attribute of thought and under the attributes of uh, either and any attributes has infinite number of modes so that we under the substance conceived under the attribute of, of thought can have there can be infinite individual thoughts and the same thing with substance the, the modes of uh, of, uh, of uh, substance conceived as as extension there can be infinite uh, extended things in terms of cause and effect 
there is no in in Spinoza. There is no ultimate uh, cause. Uh, it, there is just the laws of causation that that um, have gone on forever and will continue to go on forever. So, just as a scholastic point, uh, I, I just wanted to to put that out. There. Thank you for that motion. Maybe just in the we've got about just ten minutes remaining, and so I thought what I would do here is just move relatively quickly, unfortunately, but uh, we can introduce this idea of the divided line. And um, this is maybe where we can start to reconcile some of these notions that we have uh, about knowledge and how to how to understand the truth of what we are seeing either with the eyes or with the mind. Uh, so in this section from 509D to 511B, um, Socrates is suggesting that we need to kind of use the analogy of a line and divide this line in two unequal sections. And the, the word unequal here, I've underlined um, on what you're seeing in the screen, uh, just because um, that gives need, that gives rise to the need for ratio. So, um, so Socrates says it is like a line divided into two unequal sections, then divide each section, namely that of the visible and of the intelligible in the same ratio as a line. Uh, then he talks about of the relative clarity and opacity of those sections of the line. One, sub one subsection of the visible consists of images. So here we're on the visible part of the line that includes those images, such as the images that the prisoner in the cave saw. And he says, by the images, I mean first shadows like what the prisoner was seeing on the wall, then reflections in water and in all close packed, smooth and shiny materials and everything of that sort, if you understand. In the other subsection of the visible, put the originals of those images, main, namely the animals around us, all the plants and the whole class of manufactured things. Um, and so then he talks about the use of opinion with those and uh, you know, the connection of opinion to knowledge. Uh, so in, in terms of the visible things, you know, are we able to connect the, the images of what we see with the actual thing itself? Uh, he goes on then to talk about the part of the line that deals with the intelligible realm. So this is the realm that we cannot see, uh, such as the realm of knowledge. I mean, knowledge itself cannot be seen. We can see things that we know or we think we know, but we can't see knowledge itself. So this line is divided between the visible things and the intelligible things. So the second part, he talks about the intelligible things. And he says, consider now how the section of the intelligible is to be divided. And this is what I find really interesting. He says, in one, sec in one subsection, the soul, using as images the things that were imitated before, is forced to investigate from hypotheses, proceeding not to a first principle, but to a conclusion. So we start with hypotheses, we move to conclusion. We don't know what the first principle is at this point. He says, in the other subsection, however, it makes its way to a first principle that is not a hypothesis, proceeding from a hypothesis, but without the images used in the previous subsection, using forms themselves and making its investigation through them. So we're not making reference here to the, to the visible images because that's in the visible part of the line. Here we're just uh, making reference to a first principle uh, from a hypothesis. So he's kind of suggesting that in the mind, I think, uh, and I'm interested to see how others read this, uh, suggesting in the mind that we we use two forms of confirming the, val the val validity of things. We, 
we go from hypothesis to conclusions, and then we go from uh, hypothesis to first principle. And then we kind of compare those processes in a form of dialectic, uh, which is where we kind of you know, combine the arguments and reconcile them and see if in the intersection of those arguments, we reach some sort of agreement. And I think this is a very important part of what he's talking about in terms of testing our knowledge. And I'm wondering what others uh, think about this. Um, I'll throw it over to JK, your thoughts, JK? It sounds like he's, uh, he's doing what the, what the, uh, you know, the empiricists were doing, you know, vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis and then the, uh, and the rationalists. So he's like uh, the first hypothesis, you know, uh, is proceeding, you know, um, to first principles uh, into a conclusion. It sounds like the, the inductive logic, inductive reasoning, right? And he's, uh, he's building hypotheses based on empirical experience. And then the second part is, is uh, you begin with first principles that are not hypotheses. Isn't that deductive logic then? And he's, he's, he's coming up with these categories, a priori categories of understanding, you know, uh, uh, a priori and a posteriori and so forth, and trying to bring them together to um, into this kind of um, interaction or dialectic uh, to um, to come to some kind of an uh, a understanding of what uh, you know what is truth. It sounds like you know precursor of Kantian, <laughs> Kant, the Kantian philosophy of uh, of the um, you know first critique, right? That's fascinating. I really like the way that you use both the inductive and deductive approaches to logic, and and then you know comparing them so that you're not relying on either one or the other. Uh, so that in your reasoning, which is kind of part of the three-part soul that that Socrates continually presents here and and elsewhere, um, you know the, the 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 faculty of reason is what brings these two lines of reasoning together, these two lines of logic, the deductive line and the inductive line. Um, and I think that's that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, and, and certainly, I think, as you said, it, it has had an influence on future or subsequent philosophers such as Kant. I'm wondering, does anybody else have any ideas or thoughts about this section? You know, is this is this particular approach uh, helpful to to making sense of these images that we see, and making sense of what's in the intelligible realm? Moshe, um, I, I want to make the distinction between um, uh, knowing what Plato said and having a clear understanding of the. Uh, of the um, uh, his theory of the divided line, uh, which I take as something that uh, you could ask, um, you know, any undergraduate uh, in a class to tell you what the divided line was, and he should or she should be able to trot it out. Uh, I want to distinguish that from some of the language that is used uh, in this section to describe what's going on, uh, because uh, we, for emphasis, you've. Uh, underlined from hypothesis to conclusion. And I, at least for me, I don't think of a hypothesis. Um, I, uh, well, I just want to point out, you know, I have a hypothesis that the, uh, uh, that the dent in the car door was caused by an, uh, a collision with another automobile, okay? 
And when I verified that an, indeed another automobile hit the door and caused it to, to crush in like that, that's a conclusion. But what the, it, it, what it really does is it validates the hypothesis. And hypotheses are things whose conclusions can either validate them or falsify them. For instance, going back to my idea of, you know, the dent in the car was caused by a collision with another car. That could be, uh, that hypothesis could be falsified. That would be the conclusion if the car, in fact, wasn't hit by another car, but was hit by a large stone falling off a mountain as I drove by. So I think that we have to be careful with our idea of a conclusion that it's going to lead us to, uh, to a true hypothesis only, because a conclusion can also lead us to the falsification of the hypothesis. And, and so it, it doesn't follow from that, that, that if we have this infinite chain, or let's say a finite chain, uh, we come up uh, of hypotheses and conclusions, that we come up with the first principle. We might not. Okay, everyone wants to go along and say, oh, hypothesis, conclusion, hypothesis, conclusion, we find a first principle. No, it could be hypothesis and the conclusion invalidates the hypothesis. And so we don't come to a first principle at all. So I just want to point out that analytically. I also want to separate that from, you know, what the canonical understanding of, you know, Plato's divided line is. And, and uh, I think yes, we appreciate that, and you, you pointed out a, a good point. I think that that the conclusion can be something that is, in fact, uh, you know, a, that that the hypothesis was falsified. And I think that's a good point uh, to understand. And I think here he's saying that there's, it's a two-part process. We we go from hypothesis to conclusion uh, using the images that we've retained in our memory. But then without using those images, we do a second process, which is going from hypothesis to a first principle using only the forms and not the images. Um, and I think it's what he's trying to say is that in the comparison of those two processes, in the reconciliation of those two processes, we would find uh, either the truth of what we thought in the hypothesis or the falsification of what we thought in the, in the hypothesis. But either way, we would wind up at a true representation of uh, of reality. Um, so thank you for raising that idea of falsification. I think that's that's quite important here to understand. It's not explicit in this particular section, but I think it's important to understand. We just have, uh, we're actually running short on time. So if we can go a few minutes over the scheduled ending time, uh, if everybody could bear with us, that would be great. And we'll end maybe at uh, 12.05. Uh, I've got Joel though with his hand up. So we'll take... Uh, Joel, and uh, any final thoughts uh, we can have before we end the recording? And then after we end the recording, as I said earlier, uh, those who want to stay online for Plato's Cafe, just a casual discussion unrecorded, are welcome to do so. So we'll go to Joel. Hey, guys, can you hear me properly? Yes, we can. Well, first of all, hi, everybody. I hope everyone had a great summer. It's awesome to see everyone. So sorry I came in late. Um, 
But what caught my ear a few minutes earlier was this talk about first causes. So I would actually just like to come in with my hands up and ask everybody for some quick clarification because this was actually jumping around my mind earlier this summer. And I was hoping if anybody can help me, if I can, I saw two correlations here about whether the idea of a first cause is valid. So um, coming up with, you know, Einstein's famous equation of E equals MC squared, which is basically the, uh, the equivalent of saying energy and mass are uh, interchangeable and they are different forms of the same thing. And if you were able to combine that first observation with the law of uh, conservation of energy, that is to say energy cannot be created nor destroyed, is, is it, if you combine those two, um, those two Form, uh, formulas, is that essentially saying that matter is a form of energy and energy is, you know, is eternal to a degree there, there it's, it's, um, it's infinite. There, there is no first cause. It could be like, if you break it down all the way down to quantum mechanics and then things like string theory is coming out onto the forefront, like is, are, are those correlated or am I out in left field trying to uh, mix those together? Thank you, Joel, for that. Interesting question. I think you're, you've asked a question about physics and certainly, or, or at least as Einstein defined physics as the equivalence of uh, energy and mass at the speed of light squared. And there can be this conversion from one to the other. Uh, and I think you raise a really interesting question is, was there a first cause of energy? Um, and, you know, I think if I understand the question that relates really maybe to this idea of the big bang, uh, you know, which is held to be the idea that, you know, everything started in this big uh, explosion, you know, 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, but then that raises the question of, well, what caused the Big Bang? Um, and so maybe we'll let uh, JK have the last word on that question. Yeah, you know, um, Einstein was very enamored by um, Spinoza. He wrote a a long, uh, quite a long uh, <clears throat> love letter to Spinoza, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> elevating his philosophy to that of uh, uh, a very true understanding of, of, uh, of the first cause. I think so. He might have been equating thinking about uh, energy as maybe the ultimate substance. I'm, I'm not sure. But that's an interesting, um, you know, uh, question you raised there. But, uh, you know, science today are, in the book by uh, Stephen Hawking, he's saying that if we can understand that uh, through the theory of everything, all these different, you know, all the four or five different um, uh, causes, um, then we would understand what God is. Interesting connection between Einstein and uh, Spinoza. I had forgotten about that. And I think we'll probably get more into the first cause when we start talking about Parmenides later this season. But uh, I see, Jacob, your hand up. So we just have literally a minute left, Jacob, if you'd like to throw in a last uh, thought there. Right. Uh, it's, it's amazing that, you know, I got through just pointing out the fact that, you know, that reason is limited. Right. And, and then after I'm done, you continue going on with reasoning. Reasoning is limited. It can never get to the truth, right? Just see that simple fact. It's a fact. It's not an idea. It's not a theory. It's not a belief. It's an actual fact, right? So what happens when you see that fact, right? Won't you stop? 
And in the stopping, something else takes place. And you never get there. You're never there. And only that attention, I call it total attention, only total attention can see the truth, which will set you free from the me, the thinker, which is an illusion. Thought made it up because the organism was seeking security. It was seeking permanency. It gained great comfort in the idea, the notion of a me that will continue. And it thought that it would provide security when, in fact, we have thousands of years of history to see what life with the me is like with all its divisions and brutality and war and mental afflictions and everything. And we never go, well, what would life be without the me, right? And is there a me? Is there actually a me? I think we're under two delusions, that there is a me, right? And that we cannot live without it. And those two delusions hold us to, this, to the thinker, the experiencer, which is acting as a filter, which prevents us from seeing things as they are. We see things as we are. We never see anything. We only see ourselves, like John Malkovich going down his own portal. That is your whole life from the cradle to the grave. But the good news is that it's not inevitable. It's not hardwired. It's not that it must be this way and that there's no other way to be. And the children are ready to be set free. It's our natural state. The fact is we're already there. There's nothing to do, right? But we're under these delusions, right? And that's what holds us, you know. And from the delusions, we, we see the world. From our delusions, a mind that is crippled. And then we're thinking, oh, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. No, you, you're sick. The mind is crippled by delusions, illusions, hallucinations, mirages, which are your beliefs, your ideas. All ideas are abstractions. They're not what's actually taking place now. And you're with your ideas and notions and interpretations rather than the actual. So thank you, thank you for that. Yeah. Jacob, I think you know this this idea that reason is Limited. not necessarily going to believe lead to a finite position. I, I think that's an important point that you're making and and it is potentially infinite in its ability to regress. So uh, it, it has a place yeah. in function though. Like yeah. language, right now I'm using yeah. language. That's yeah. reason. That's thought. Yeah. Right. So it has a place. Yeah. Well, let's let's just go to J.K. and literally we, we just we should end this in in about two minutes. But J.K., your thoughts? Yeah, just like in uh, in Buddhist enlightenment, there are two uh, you know paths. One is the gradual, and the other one is sudden enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And they both uh, you know have something to commend. Maybe it's uh, it's it's uh, depends on the the person you know. And so some people need to traverse the fantasy and uh, in order to get there. And, um, and reason is one of those fantasies. And um, that's the only path that the, a reasonable person can know to lead to his destination, right? And uh, other people may take drugs, other people meditate, other people sit in a room by themselves and just contemplate. And so there, there are different paths, I think, to, to enlightenment. There's no path. Interesting, interesting idea, J.K. That I, you know, path you is in, time. You brought in, J.K., that idea of Buddhism. Time is the enemy. It, you that's, brought in, that's a path. That's a path. <laughs> no, don't make it yeah. into a path. Your mind, yeah. right, made 
listened, heard my thing, translated it into an idea, right? Made it into a path, right? Your mind did that. I made a verbal statement, right? The you verbal know. statement is not the thing itself. It's pointing to something. The words are pointing. Now you're with the words, making it into an idea. Now you're lost. Yeah. Well, Jacob, we, I'm afraid we'll have to, we'll have to right. wind up uh, at, at this point, Jacob. Do we, we will have the opportunity to return to this discussion, though. I think it's a very important one. I think it will kind of permeate our discussions on the Republic. And so uh, I thank everybody for participating today. And just remind everybody again that our next session will be in three weeks, not two. Uh, and our, the passages that we'll look at, at in that section in the Republic are 368A to 376C. I'll get the posting up on meetup.com shortly. And I hope everybody uh, will be available to return uh, with us uh, at that point and look forward to that discussion. We can certainly, as I said, continue this kind of uh, conception of knowledge that we have been working on today and uh, really understanding uh, how it applies uh, as we go forward in the Republic and the other dialogues that we'll look at this season. So again, thank you everybody for participating in such a great discussion today. So many good ideas. I've been making notes all the way along and looking forward to uh, listening to the recording, which will get up on uh, various uh, podcasting platforms, uh, likely within the next week or so. Um, and uh, looking forward to seeing everybody in three weeks. Those who wish, I, I'll stop the recording in a moment. Uh, those who wish to stay online, please do so. Feel free to do so. And we'll continue until about uh, 1230 Eastern time here. If anybody wants to chat just about what we talked about today or just uh, philosophy in general. So thank you all again. And uh, we we'll hope to see you in three weeks. Bye.